Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. Everyone. Hello. Hello, hello. We have a special guest today. Super exciting. We're doing our first um, over Zoom interview, so that's that's exciting. Um, In the past, we've just had people come, come to the garage. (laughs) But now we're branching out and it should be pretty exciting. And we have them zoom into the garage. Yeah. Because we're still in the garage. Yeah. So you're in the garage with us, Vicky. How are you doing? Hi, guys. I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. I'm good. Yeah. No complaints. It's Friday. I have to start teaching next week. So Yes, I was getting all the websites Shit's going to get real. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And right now I'm going through my... Just so Coffin's book, Coffin's book, Coffin's book. That's all we do. But... And walk. I get 10,000 steps in every day. Oh, that's impressive. I know. That's many steps, yes. It's, a, it's many steps. Um, and Amber showed up to do the podcast, and she's like, who's that crazy lady walking up and down the street? Oh. <laughs> and that was me. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Looking at her feet. Looking at my feet, looking at my phone, doing something. Anyway. Yes. Well, I can introduce our our guests for today. Um, So today we are very grateful to have Dr. Victoria Alonzo Viatoro. Um, Vicky, if we may, I think. Um, You may. Perfect. Um, So Vicky, I'm going to do your bio. We're going to read your your very impressive bio, and then we can get into um, a little bit about yourself and then go into more depth about your um, one of your recent publications that I think our audience will be very interested in. Mm -hmm. I've found very, very interesting as well. Um, okay, so Vicky obtained her PhD in Egyptology at Brown in 2022. Yay, congrats. Yay. She is an incoming junior research fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows 2022 to 2025. Which is the best postdoc in America for humanities PhDs. Yeah, that's so just incredible. Put, just putting that Super out there. Super happy you, were, you got that. Um, and she specializes in the use of language and hieroglyphs icon- iconosity. Yes, to understand oral knowledge and ideology in Old Kingdom Egypt. Since 2019, she's been a member of the AERA, IRA uh, Archaeological Project at Giza, and is the assistant director to the Royal Necropolis and Pyramids of Nuri since 2021. Welcome, Vicky. Thank you for, for coming to chat with us today. You were just in town a couple weeks ago for um, a presentation, and we weren't able to, to grab you then, so I'm glad we were able to make time to... For our interview today and i wasn't able to come to your presentation neither was i because there was all I this zoomed in you zoomed in mm-hmm. i couldn't even zoom in there was so much ridiculousness going on that um and covid and yeah. all, all kinds of stuff so i missed it i scheduled it and then i missed it yeah so how are you doing today very good thank you so much for having me here it's such a pleasure and uh, and yes and I, in la uh, when was it last week two weeks ago that, yes. that i went it was so much fun Sorry that I missed you guys, but it will be next time. But I'm so happy to be here today over Zoom. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I it feels like it was just yesterday, but I think it was a couple weeks ago now. It was a couple weeks ago. This June has been, this year has flown by, I feel like. 
Um, so I think first, since we, we've done this with all of our guests and I think it interests our audience, um, just can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into Egyptology and your journey um, to Brown um, and how you, you know, you ended up, now you're at Harvard, which is super impressive. So how did you get into Egyptology? Um, what made you pursue this as a career? Yeah, so this is a question that I get and probably you guys get all the time too, right? <laughs> like yes. why, why Egypt? And I never know what to answer because it's like if someone asks me, why do you like your husband? Yeah. <laughs> why are you in love with him? I don't know. <laughs> it's just how it is. I've always liked Egypt since I was uh, a little kid. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have any memories in my life in which I didn't like Egypt. So mm -hmm. when I was little, I would be asking my parents to give me all the, because I'm from Spain, so uh, most of the Egyptological literature is written in English, German, French, as you, as you all know. Mm -hmm. uh, also, more and more, more things are written in Spanish, but uh, when I was younger, there, were, there was not so much stuff, so especially not so much books that would arrive to my bookstore in my small town. So uh, every time I would arrive there, the, the woman who was working at the bookstore would call and would say, hey, Vicky, we have a new book about ancient Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> I would go there and get it because that's yeah, what I like the most. That's great. So yeah, I, uh, sorry, <laughs> you saying something. I say that's great um, <laughs> that you were like known as the Egypt kid in your, in your town. <laughs> how big a, how big a town did you grow up in in Spain? Sorry? How big a town did you grow up in in Spain? Huelva. It's uh, close to Seville in the south of Spain. How big was it? Uh, how big, sorry, I made that part. It was about uh, 100,000 people, okay. 120,000. Oh, okay. yeah. Not that yeah. small. Yeah. No, it's not super small. <laughs> yes. But for Spanish standards, I guess it is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, so, so, yeah, so, then, so I started like uh, into liking all this ancient Egyptian stuff, and then I went to study history at the university in Seville. Okay. And so did your, undergrad, did your undergrad have classes in Egyptology, or did you have to focus more in, you know, I did classics as an undergrad, for example, because my undergrad didn't have any Egyptology at all. So I was like, okay, I'll <laughs> do ancient, as much ancient I could get. Or did you do more just history, history? Yeah, so uh, in Spain, actually, now they're starting to have more uh, courses, uh, more degrees focused on ancient Egypt with more courses on ancient Egypt. But when I started, there was not much stuff. Mm -hmm. What you probably would do was history first, and then you would go to specialize, like uh, doing a master's. So that's what I did. I did, hist I did history, and uh, in, my, in my bachelor's degree, there were a couple of courses on ancient Near Eastern history. And then I had to take extra courses, like extracurricular courses on ancient hieroglyphs. Okay. So that's what it was. That's nice that um, they had that as an option, at least, though. Yeah, yeah, no, you're I a language specialist, right? Yeah, well, uh, that's what I, yes, that's what I specialize in language. So uh, the, the language I started to study uh, first, you know, when I was maybe, um, Right before starting college, I was reading the Gardener's Grammar, oh, and nice. I was like, I mean, I didn't do much progress on my own because the, for hieroglyphs you definitely need help. Yeah. So, so what I tried, <laughs> and then uh, in college I started uh, studying more uh, with, with my professor, learning uh, hieroglyphs proper, and I decided that I like that I, that I wanted to focus on that. So then you did your masters in Spain before going to Brown, or did you go right to Brown? Uh, I did a master's in Italy in the University oh, okay. of Pisa. Ancient cool. Eastern Studies was the master's two years there. And then I went to Brown right after that. Cool. And then how was your experience at Brown? You work with Jim Allen, right? 
Yes, yes, he was my advisor. Yes, yes, very good. Uh, Brown is a good university. There are uh, many courses you can take, grad seminars, and uh, also you have, of course, the flexibility of taking uh, courses on linguistics too in the Department of Linguistics. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's great. And uh, and then, well, uh, being in the US, you can also, of course, attend all these uh, RCAs or these annual conferences, which are a big thing in the US, and not mm-hmm. so much in Europe. You have them, but uh, like less in you have less of this like annual component like we have in the US. So these very big options are C and A. So I guess in Europe they have the CRE too, which is also great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I'm finding uh, more and more conferences in Europe that I'm like, oh, I want to be able to go to them at least for textiles and dress studies. Oh, there's an there's ancient like, astrology uh-huh. one. There's an ancient <laughs> astrology one, and I so want to go, but it, it's in Berlin. Yeah. It's right before classes start. I'm like, yeah. I can't. I can't make it. Yeah, it's hard to just it's, rationalize paying for a thousand dollar plane ticket to go to one conference yes that's a thing but yeah in europe also they have more specialized conferences yes. often too, so that's yeah for yes. sure yeah for sure well that's uh, yeah. one and so you work with jim allen who if our listeners don't know um is i would say one of the biggest scholars in uh, egyptian language right now he has his own grammar which you might come across um he work, He does a lot with early Egyptian language pyramid texts and stuff. But he, you know, spans the Egyptian language. So and his it, grammar yeah. is very frustrating to work with and yes. teach with because now I think he's on the fourth edition and now the verb is just like one thing rather than <laughs> what it used to be. And people are like I don't know how to work with this. It's all very amorphous. How do you keep up with his uh, changing grammar? <laughs> uh, that's difficult. I know, but I have to say that undergrads prefer if there's only one one subject as opposed to. Uh, Six MFs. That's true. In a case, but yes, it's difficult to, to keep up with the uh, continuous developments. Yeah, that's fair. That's very fair. And then now you're you're about to start at the Harvard Society of Fellows, which I think you're the first Egyptologist, right? Getting yes, that. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, do you I have? I look forward. Very exciting. Yes. Yeah. So and that's a three year, four, four year. Three, yes, three years. Oh, it's three? Yes. That's oh, amazing. I thought it was four. Mm-hmm. Yes, That's I great. start right now in the, well, next month, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. At least mm-hmm. it won't be uh, too much of a, you know, it's close enough to where Brown was, not too much of a move. Well, I'm actually right now in Arizona. Okay. So from here, it's going to be a move. Yes. That's true. And different and weather. Such, <laughs> yes, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> like, I go from extreme heat to, I guess, extreme cold. Yeah. That's very fair. You guys in California have just like the perfect with it. Yeah, well, we have the non-changing. It's always low 70s. Yep, you can't it's complain. Easy. We just don't have any water. So. Yes, that's a problem. We're going <laughs> to have to big start pipelining it in. Low 70s is my house AC temperature. That's perfect. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I keep it on, too. <laughs> okay, let's see. Um, so can you just... In summary, can you give our, our listeners, um, you know, an overview of your research interest, interests, maybe what your dissertation was on? We'll get, obviously, into one of your your journal articles a little later. Um, I mean, I think we've seen a bunch of your presentations at RC and, and such. Um, but just if you were to describe your research interests, interests in a couple sentences. Mm-hmm. So, I, as, as we were saying before, I guess my primary interest is uh, language and philology the study of ancient texts, and I've done a lot of work on religion too, and social history and political history. What I've been working on for my dissertation is how language actually can help us 
understand the way uh, Egyptians saw themselves and uh, saw each, they, their role in their own community. So mm -hmm. I have a bit of like to say social, historical, political questions, but I use linguistic evidence to answer them. Yeah. And I think it's, it's such a fascinating, um, whenever you give a presentation, I'm always like, wow, like never it's a thought perspective of it. we yeah. had not thought of. Yeah. It's true. Thank you. Yeah. And well, and I think you have to have such a firm grounding in the language that a lot of us don't have if you're not a philologist that, um, you know, you can pull from so many different texts and back it up so well. And then I think also you don't fall into the trap that most philologists do where you're just like just text, just translating and you don't ever, you know, go big picture and see where it where it plays within this in this social role. And I think you're you do a really good job of melding, wedding the two together um, and really applying it and making it past that just, oh, here's a translation. This is the verb form. And can I ask what's the most shocking and amazing thing that you found using your mm. linguistic methods? Like what's the thing where you're like, I can't believe I, I was actually able to prove or find that. So I would say, this is a difficult question, but I, I would say now from the, from the first thing that comes to my mind now, what, what has fascinated me the most from what I found in, lang in language is uh, when I was studying actually politeness in the, in the Old Kingdom letters, when I was expecting, because I was studying how Egyptians make requests, how they make complaints, and how do they try to, you know, we all try to disguise our intentions. We want to say something a bit bad, right? So we want to make a request or a uh -huh. complaint. So, uh, so I was expecting them to be, you know, to be su super polite, to be, trying to be very deferential in all these uh, communications. And then I found actually that they, uh, that what they are actually doing in these letters is more, more is mostly to appeal to their connections within themselves. So actually, rather than creating distance, it's a matter of creating proximity between mm. between each other, uh, which is quite uh, different than the way we act, we use politeness. Uh, I use politeness. I'm my, uh, the, the people that I know, I guess uh, my Western culture uses politeness. Yeah. So, so that was something that, that, that I found fascinating. That for us, it's all about distance. And from them, it's all about proximity. Yeah, that's an interesting, because I think a lot of times we just automatically assume our Western way of doing yeah. things is the are natural, we just assume like, oh, when you're being polite, this would be the, you know, human way of doing it. But it turns out, you know. Right, and politeness is not universal. That's exactly. fascinating. Yeah. That, and that's also the, the fact that it's not universal that creates also so many intercultural conflicts, right? Mm -hmm. When you expect that you have to behave in a certain way and that the people you're talking to should behave in a certain way and then they don't. Yeah. I think Wait, we've where all been is there. politeness not functional? Where do people most feel impoliteness is appropriate have you found impoliteness uh, i wouldn't say impoliteness yeah i wouldn't say like in the sense of like being rude because at the end of the day uh proximity creating proximity rather than distance is politeness as well it's just it's not our kind of politeness mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it was not so a form of politeness for them so uh, so if instead of uh, of saying would you may please do this for me? I say, uh, hey, why are you not doing this for me? It's like, is that you care about me anymore? <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. a, 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 appealing to this connection, to the, to the friendliness rather than to the, to the distance, to the difference. So maybe that's a form of politeness. Maybe it is a form of politeness for them. It's just different than the, than the one that mm -hmm. I use. But that doesn't mean that it's not polite, that it's rude. Yeah. It's like maybe if I, if I am too 
uh, too cold to say to the financial, I offend someone because they don't expect me to be that way. Mm-hmm. It's like that thing going around on Twitter. I don't know if you guys saw about the map of, of Europe. Mm. And it being like where people will invite you in for food. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like Mediterranean cultures are always, you know, come in, I will feed you. And then as you got more northern and up into Scandinavia, and it was very much like they don't invite you in. Well, because on Twitter right now or in the last week, it just blew up that the, the Swedes don't invite each other mm-hmm. over. If a kid's over there yeah. for dinner or even lunch, it's like, no, we're eating lunch now. Yeah. Just Go. sit in the room. <laughs> but like, And like to, I think a lot of us. That would be like rude. Yes. But not in Swedish culture. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So this reminds me also of a conversation, something that I heard once when I was living in Italy, because uh, Italy is uh, very divided between South and North, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, I was living in the South and then I also moved to live in the North. So I was was in both places. So uh, I was talking to this person from the South and she said that she, she once went to visit some relatives from the North Mm -hmm. and they arrived late around dinner time. So the relatives started like, they put the food on the table and they said, do you guys want to eat? And she, the, the one from the South, she was like, oh no, I'm fine, thank you. And they, they, the Northerner relatives, they said, okay, cool. And they started eating. <laughs> and they didn't, didn't offer her any more food anymore because she said no yeah. in the beginning. But she was expecting actually them to insist and yeah. to, uh, to ask her again. Mm-hmm. So again, this is for them. For the, for the northerners, it would be rude to just not be straightforward to say no mm-hmm. <laughs> when you actually mean yes. Yep. And for the south, southerners, uh, it would be rude to not to offer food again because that's what they were expecting from their own culture. So yep. that's why politeness is so interest, interesting. So can I, can I conclude then that the ancient Egyptians were more southern Italian than they were <laughs> northern Italian? I would think so, yes. <laughs> that's what I would say. <laughs> more that's, Mediterranean. That's my feel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. I have Southern Spanish myself. I like that too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you have to, no, I'm fine. Okay. No, really, you should eat. No, I'm, oh, oh, okay, okay. There's yeah. a funny show that my son likes called Kim's Convenience, where the the Korean mother is meeting the white girlfriend for the first time. And she's like, you must ask me three times for every time you offer food. And if you do not do it, and, and she quizzes her and tests her. And the second time, she's like, I said no. And so the white girl's like, okay, um, never mind. She's like, no, you didn't ask yeah, me three ask times. Again. And it was really funny. I can't do it, obviously. But, but it's like the yeah. slight cultural, like it happens even in like the States. If you're with like a Southern United States family and like if you say no to something, it mm-hmm. comes across as very rude. So mm-hmm. you're like, I'm full, but I'm going to have to eat something. And you wonder what the social circumstances are that demand this kind of dancing around an issue, this kind of non-direct speech, this kind of Mm -hmm. I'm going to dissemble and not tell you the full truth, because if I say the full truth, it will shock all of us Mm -hmm. into some sort of impoliteness, and we can't have that. And Vicky, just... um, I know this is hard and you can't just say there's a one-to-one correlation, but do you see more direct speech in places where there's more of an even playing field socially and more indirect super politeness in a place where there's more of a hierarchical or I dare I say pyramidal kind of social community? You mean in ancient Egypt or in general? In general. In general. Yes. So actually... This is something I was wondering too, but I didn't explore further to see in other cultures. What I do know is that, well, there was this anthropologist, uh, a, a whole, ever whole, and uh, that was, uh, well, it's dated now, but, mm-hmm. uh, but actually 
works quite well and has been used also in uh, in business business and uh, multicultural communication. Uh-huh. His theory of high and low context culture, in which uh, he argues that uh, these societies that use language in a more um, indirect way uh, or use more more contextual cues instead of you know putting everything in the in the sentence itself. For example, I don't know gestures with the hands or. Uh, other sort of cues that you can use. Yeah. These people are the so-called high-context culture in which you have to take the context to understand. Ah, okay. And these are societies in which people are much more interconnected. So the information travels around other pathways. And uh, there is no need to express so much in what, in what you're saying in, the, um, in, uh, in your sentences, in the grammar, in mm-hmm. the, using your vocabulary, whatever you want to say. Because... And you have the context to get to uh, to transmit this information, mm-hmm. and also what people say to each other. This community uh, shared knowledge, as to say. Uh, for example, in this in this model, English is usually classified as a, a as a low context culture because everything is transmitted more in the grammar and less in the context. It's like Greek versus Latin, the whole adage of you know you can write something really short um, in Latin, and then Greek it would be multi lines. There's that whole adage within Latin texts that if you want to say something like obscure, you use Greek. But does that does that have anything to do with like directness of speech? I suppose it. It's why what's like when politicians would give their talks. Oh, okay. It's like they might use Greek instead because it's easier to be to obfuscate oh. instead of what you're trying to say yeah. rather than Latin. It's a very direct. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So they're like, don't touch the Greeks because they can use their language to kind of go oh, around the issues. Okay. The whole. Greeks are untrustworthy adage. Well, and the Greeks are all, it's a very leveled community, very leveled um, society, maybe not Sparta, where you have some who are elites and, and mm-hmm. then others who are far below, but it's a more leveled mm-hmm. place than Rome, ancient Rome, right? I would argue, just taking things in a very yeah. simplistic way. But, um, so that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm just looking at the social structures behind it you know and yeah. and why these things might be um but it's also like greeks a much older indo-european language than than latin mm-hmm. um it's you know so it's like does the age of the language have anything to do with it vicky because well see because i imagine if you're getting a language even if the language is younger quote unquote yeah. right like romanian is going to be a, a you know yeah, like one of the, the earliest offshoots of latin but then it's you know, it's a relatively young language, maybe in comparison to others, but mm-hmm. like, is that going to make any, you're still inheriting the language as was before, right? Mm-hmm. So it's evolutionarily going to be cut off and created from another language as mm-hmm. the language tree develops. So, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. If a, but then like the Romanian might pull in some of its Slavic neighbors and, yeah. and like, I mm-hmm. think, you know, what, we're totally going off topic here, but like what <laughs> would maybe where they get their politeness from, it could be from the Roman, or it could be from the like Slavic. It it's this like ad like very organic. Well, you can see it in English, right? That if we use vocabulary that are more French based, mm-hmm. more Norman, more elite, more aristocratic, then you ask for things in a certain way. Mm-hmm. If you use more Germanic based words, the Anglo-Saxon words, mm-hmm. then you ask in a you know it's much more direct, arguably, and that right there kind of freaks me out when I start to think about why that might be and what it could but it, like, that's yeah. so complex yeah <laughs> also when like, you, you're mixing oh sorry go ahead no go ahead I was saying when you're mixing like the, as you were saying like Germanic words with like uh, 
French or Latin origin words because then you get also into uh, the ling language style as well and uh, whether language linguistic registers whether you want to speak in a you know, more high language low mm -hmm. language so yeah. It's, yeah yeah it's such a complex topic yes yeah and, but it's cool that you're finding that with the Egyptian text you can find all these intricacies of the language there um, it's it's wonderful very very cool Okay, but I do want to, um, obviously we can see that you have a lot of many research interests that get us, get us <laughs> peaked, um, but today we're going to focus in on one of your articles that was published in 2019, entitled um, The Cultural Indexicality of the N41 Sign, which we'll explain in a second, for Bia, the Medal of the Sky and the Sky of the Metal, published in the Journal of Egyptian Archaeology. Um, so first to get our listeners on the same page what is n41 um, <laughs> in reference to um and can we just just give some background about that sign mm -hmm. yeah so n41 is a hieroglyphic sign and uh, for those of you who don't know how the hieroglyphic system works uh, hieroglyphs can be of different kinds the n41 sign is used as an ideogram that is this sign means uh, an idea basically, mm -hmm. but it can also be used as a determinative, that is a sign that is placed at the end of a word, and it classifies the word in a specific semantic field, mm -hmm. just to disambiguate a word that may be spelled in the same way as another word, but you want to specify that this is this other kind of word and not this other one. So, so you can have sign, like a word that's about architecture, and they'll put a little house after it, or if it's a word about a a vegetable and then they'll put some little a bunch of vegetables after it or if it's an animal or a human so verb you of motion has feet moving exactly. yeah exactly an action like you're gonna craft something you might have an arm that's hitting or something like that exactly exactly so this sign is used for those two things it can be an idiom so it can be it can be used to express an idea or it can be used to express a semantic field of something mm -hmm. so in the uh, this sign we have it as an ideogram for the word via which means uh, I guess we'll say later <laughs> what it means, <laughs> but yes, we have for the word via. And, uh, and then we have it also at the end as a determinative of words that have to do uh, with water. For example, the word henemet, which is a well, uh, water well, and you have a sign at the end. So it's classified as something that has to do with water. Uh, and then also with uh, words related with women, like uh, the word for uterus. Mm -hmm. And you also have it there as a determinative. And so, just for our listeners, we'll put this obviously in the show notes, a picture of this hieroglyph, but it looks essentially like a bowl um, mm -hmm. with a little... A little water squiggle. Water squiggle on yes. top. Uh, um, so it's essentially a bowl of some sort. Um, and the N41 comes from Gardner's sign list. So an early Egyptologist, when categorizing all these, all these signs, they all get um, broken up into thematic groups and ABC through, I think, double, is it double, double A? Oh, no, I think it... Double B? Oh, maybe it's right, just C. double A, double A. I think it's just double one. A. Yeah. Um, and then, so within <laughs> those groups, so, you know, there's one group that's like animals, and all the animals then are, are then, <laughs> you know, D, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so this falls in, I think, is this the pots and... Baskets. The N is the sky, air. Oh, it's in the sky group. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sky, air, so these things. It falls <laughs> into the, to the, the earth group. Um, and it's the uh -huh. 41 sign within this group. So for Egyptologists, we use these to show, you know, to tell people which sign we're talking about. And it may seem strange, but yeah. there are some signs that we, and this is what Vicky's work is speaking to, but there are some signs we don't know 
what they're meant to represent. I was just talking about this with Jeff last night because he was showing the mess sign mm -hmm. and he found it on some early dynastic label where it was what he thought was a mess sign, but it was facing the other way. And he was like, we were talking about it, but I was like, what is the mess sign supposed to be? And he was fox like, tails. he's like, well, Gardner says it's like a thing of foxtails. But where do these foxes come from? And I was like, where did he from? get this idea from also? Yeah, like, strange. You know, it could also be a plant. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, and we just take Gardner's interpretation and early. Or the onk sign is supposed to be a sandal so, strap, maybe, sandal. right? That yeah. the long part goes between the toe and the other mm -hmm. part goes around the ankle, but we really don't know. Yeah. And yeah, so there is this book uh, uh, that says that many of these signs, I think the ang sign for sure, and maybe also the mess sign are actually parts of animals, like yes. they come from veterinary medicine, so like they, yeah, they, they are... We know uh, the ang sign one, because remember that one article about the guy thinking it's the bull? No, that's the wasp sign. No, it's ang too, and it's supposed to be... Or John Baines has an article that the ang oh. sign is the penis sheath thing. Oh, that the mm -hmm. onk is. The wasp, there was a whole set of research that, that it's the... it's like cow ovaries It's the whole... It's the whole... Tubes. No, no. It's the <laughs> bull's testicles, penis, the mm -hmm. whole glandular apparatus when butchered and removed that it it has the shape of a wasp. Yeah. Whatever that is. Because the wasp is... It's like a Seth animal, but it's not. Which means that the god Seth is a giant dick face. Just pointing that out. <laughs> if that's the case. And you know what? If the Egyptians are going to create a mythical animal out of anything, please make it a penis. I love that. And it fits his personality in every way. It's like I think the, it's great. The Roman fly, flying penai phalli. Fl I don't know about In Pompeii. Fly. They have wings. They do? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know They're that. Fun. I knew they put them everywhere, but I didn't yeah. know they had wings. Mm -hmm. Of course, the penises have wings. Of course. Okay, so <laughs> N41 sign, uh, some type of cup device, bowl, bowl or cup that is used as either an ideogram or determinative in words that have to tend to deal with the sky, water, women. That is confusing. Um, and so what's amazing about your article is you show how these all are connected and how those actually all make perfect sense. Um, so let's get a little bit more into it. So we start with the Bia sign. Um, in looking at Bia as, you know, it often gets translated as metal or iron in or, this case. Or wonder or miracle, mm -hmm. right? Well, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is interesting Personality. too. Yeah, oh, wow. Um, so it's used in phrases, right, like metal of the sky, so Bia and pet. Um, and then this gets translated into English as like meteoritic iron, right? So be of the sky, so metal of the sky, which then means, okay, a meteorite of some sort that is then crashing down to earth because we know the Egyptians didn't have non-meteoritic iron at this time when the word's showing up. Um, maybe our audience knows best like Tut's dagger, mm -hmm. that is meteoritic iron, um, but it's not until obviously the Iron Age that we're using, we're smelting iron that's being um, gotten from the ground. Yeah, from, from um, regular ore and rocks yes. and just grind them up. And but before that, you were finding, you know, meteorites and there's a lot of Near Eastern cultures, North African cultures that are finding meteoritic iron and using them. Um, so I guess my question is when you were, how did you come upon this topic in the first place to look at this BSIN and um, were you just reading, we'll get to them in a second, but were you reading through the pyramid texts and this piqued your interest that, oh, what's this weird association between metal, the sky, water, and women? Like, is this, did, did it come to you that way? Or how, how did you come onto this research question? 
So funny, it came actually from upside down. So oh, I really? started, <laughs> yes, it did come from ancient Egypt, actually. Uh, yeah, so I, it, it was my first year at Brown. I was taking a course on Sumerian, and uh, I, I read some, some text there that mentioned iron, and the word for iron in Sumerian, uh, one of the words is anna, and, the, and it uses the sign for sky. And mm. so I was like, oh, this reminds me of the new, new kingdom word for iron, which is behind bed, right? Mm -hmm. Via of the sky. So I said, there is a sky, um, the sky word in there as well. So I, I said, that was actually for my, for my Sumerian course that we had to write a paper. So I said, okay, I'm going to write a paper on this. So I wanted to look at how did this, so I know behind bed is from the New Kingdom, so what do we have from before the New Kingdom about, about iron? Uh -huh. So I went to look at the pyramid texts, and there I found, we don't have behind bed, of course, until 19th dynasty, I think, is the first attestation of behind bed. Uh, maybe 18th dynasty, but for sure it's from the New Kingdom, we don't yeah. have anything before that. And um, in the pyramid texts, we don't have behind bed, but we have Bia. Uh -huh. And we have it always in connection with the sky. So... We may not have explicitly behind bed, but we have it in connection with the sky. So that's how I started looking into this. Uh -huh. Oh, and let me just point out, N is the preposition for of, and pet right. is the noun sky. Yeah. So bia and pet is whatever the word means, miracle yeah. or yeah. iron, yeah. and then N pet mm -hmm. of the sky. Yeah. Exactly, so, yes. So then, I might be jumping the gun a little, but so the N41 sign, the bia sign... When do you think that gets associated with metal per se? Does it always have that association, even within the pyramid text, or do you not think it's till later? So uh, the interesting thing is that Bia appears also outside of the pyramid text, mm -hmm. meaning just with the with the N forty one sign and everything, meaning simply the sky, the waters of the sky. Mm -hmm. So this word is used to mean iron or whatever, some sort of metal that has something to do with the sky in the mm -hmm. pyramid text, and also sky. So my idea is that um, it's not that iron is associated with the sky, but it's just that the word for iron is the same word as for sky, so because the iron is nothing but a piece of the sky, mm -hmm. if, if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah. So it's not actually not two different words, but it's the same thing because they're talking about the same thing. Because it's just that the sky is called iron. And yeah. maybe and instead of the, of the word sky, we might use a more old-fashioned word like firmament or something like that does this make sense to you i, I know that's What's firmament mean firmament is like it's like <laughs> it's more than the sky it's like it's like, like the heaven it's like a foundational sort of sky it's a place whence stars come like if they can come to you and what are meteors but shooting stars so it's like this it's it's more than just like the sky up there it's a more materialized yeah, yeah. kind of sky <laughs> I think you have to understand the Egyptian, like, cosmogony and how they understood the earth and that, I might, again, might be jumping the gun a little, but that the sky is just like river, but it's up there so that it, you're being held, um, it's being held up in a way. <gasps> Amber points out firmament. Heavens of the sky, especially when regarded as a tangible thing. Give me a head. Yeah. Okay. So uh, firmament works very well. Is it old English? What's the, does it have an etymology? Um, 
Is this like a Bible term? I just Sounds went with Latin, it. Latin, I guess. Yeah, because we have it in Spanish too. Oh, 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 oh it's Latin-based. Yeah. Okay. I guess. <laughs> yeah, French from Latin. Okay. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, firmament seems to work well. I like firmament. Firmament yeah. in Spanish is just the same word as sky, maybe a bit more poetic. Oh. But maybe you are right, and it means originally, it means like the the tangible, I guess, like, yeah, the, the, the part of the like sky where you, you see all the go. stars. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. also, like, if you have a more, I dare say, primitive understanding of the sky, then you might think of the stars as being attached mm -hmm. to something that's mm -hmm. moving, but a more material-based understanding. Mm -hmm. Just like the Earth. Yeah. You're seeing it yeah. as, mm -hmm. like, something solid below you and something solid above yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. And you're in mm -hmm. between. And, new, you know... She is solid. Holding is solid. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure there were different conceptions about the sky. This of the iron is just one of them. Mm -hmm. So before we get into it more specifically, you're, for this article you pulled a lot from the pyramid texts. So I just want to give a little background to the audience about what are the pyramid texts, when did they date to, why are they so helpful in so many regards for early Egyptian um, cosmological understandings um so hated you, by graduate students so hated, have to do it in their exam Kara here very nicely gave me them on my language exam and none of the oh, words no. were in the dictionary <laughs> like none of the words i was like none of these words are here i was like what do you want me to do with this that was a hard one uh -huh. so um yeah how do you how do you work with the pyramid texts and yeah uh pyramid texts uh, what they are, that's a difficult question. I and mean, we, we say, just to summarize, that they are religious texts, mm -hmm. probably the oldest religious texts in the world. And uh, for sure, in Egypt, the longest, the long, uh, the oldest long religious texts. We have some fragments older than that, but they, these are the, the, the oldest consistent long texts. Mm -hmm. And uh, we say religious, but they are actually a mix of many things. Uh, they have some uh, philosophical conceptions, they have also political uh, theory, they have, uh, uh, I, I will say also some uh, pre-scientific um, collections of knowledge in there as well. So they are uh, saying that they are religious, it's just, I would say, to impose our own idea of genres mm -hmm. <laughs> into ancient Egyptian texts, which may not work as well. But yeah, for the sake of uh, uh, clarity, let's say yes, they are uh, religious texts and they have a collection, they have collections of spells for, to help the king reach the, the, the afterlife, and they have also some uh, recitations that the priests were supposed to uh, to read out loud in mm -hmm. some ceremonies at the moment, perhaps, of the burial of the king, and uh, also parts of stories about the gods, what we, we call mythology. They are dated around 2600 BC, the oldest uh, texts, they appeared in, the pyramid, in some pyramids in Saqqara, mm -hmm. close to Cairo. And so how are these really helpful for you in, in looking at this you know, earlier appearances of via within within the Egyptian language. So uh, it was actually in this text that I realized then that the word via appears in connection with the sky in several uh, different passages. Uh, mm -hmm. Always in connection with the sky. It doesn't appear in any other context in the pyramid text. And um, and there, so I um, going back again to our um, original discussion of the sign. Uh, of N41 being related with women and water and uh, metals mm -hmm. and all that. Uh, thanks to this, I was able to to draw the mental picture of um, an iron bowl containing waters as the 
to say metaphorical image of the sky yes. that is portrayed in the pyramid text. And it's such a beautiful image because then like meteorites, like iron, like it's part of the bowl, like pieces of the bowl falling to earth. Yeah, and exactly. So then that, that bowl isn't a bowl, it's kind of like a channel that continues. That but it, this it long holds thing. it up. Yeah, but Newt, as as depicted, is the vault of the firmament mm -hmm. that goes over us. But then we understand that it's inside of her where the mm -hmm. duat is. And I know in the pyramid text, it doesn't always work in this way. But by coffin text, you get that kind mm -hmm. of understanding, right, of this inside of the sky. Um, mm -hmm. So then I think of it as not like a bowl, but like a whole long well, that's also, channel of like a Milky Way yeah. sort of thing, which is I, I know where you go as well. But then also thinking of newt yeah, and then the sign being used for the word for uterus yes. and women and newt being... So we all have the Milky Way we all are. inside of ourselves. We are all miracles. Um, we are and all of the sky. We are all born in water at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's very true. So I pulled some references from the pyramid text to read out loud, I think, for our audience members to maybe a little bit more tangible understanding. Um, so Unis, one of the, the kings that um, has these texts recorded in his, uh, in his pyramid. In the first. In the first. Yeah. Um, so one of the texts reads, Unis acquires the sky and splits its bia. Splits its bia. <laughs> so, so he's having sex with her. He's splitting it. Well, and the word for split, I believe, uh. um, it's more pierce. Yeah. Right? Oh, the... Those men. Oh, this one in, the, in this in this con in this con context in this specific sen sentence, I think it's split, split open, split like open. Separate, in the same concept of separate two things to open them. So is this to I for think... him to be reborn in the next life? He needs to enter the heavens, which then means he needs to, like, is Bia more of this liminal space almost, this like door passage. Mm -hmm. Oh, so he's opening, it's, it's then more like Westcar, the women's, who's bo women's bodies who haven't been opened in childbirth yet. So if he splits the sky, he's being born. Is that more what it is? That's what I'm understanding. Like sort of like a metaphor for being reborn. Mm -hmm. Because also the, the, the sky, this uh, be a bowl uh, with water, uh, sometimes it's also referred to as the egg. Yes. So Unas splits the egg as well. And if you split an egg, you have also a hemispherical, sort of like bowl-like. And it looks just uh, like the sign with the little uh, zigzags oh, at the top. Wow. It just looks like a cracked eggshell. Oh, yes. Wow. Okay. So it's, yeah. Being reborn, getting inside the egg. Yeah. That makes... And then we have another one where the cords wait, of wait, Bia... Go wait, wait, go back. Yes, yes. So that the means egg. then, could one then say that the ancient Egyptians had an understanding of the world as a sphere and the bia around it as a sphere around the earth is that that's what i think i think it's that uh, they saw the sky as a hemispherical like sort of like half egg mm -hmm. shape but then under the earth in the pyramid text at least in some passages because i think we have a mix of traditions as well but uh, in the under the under the earth which maybe was a flat sort of like strip but under the earth there was another half of the yeah. egg. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. It is. It makes it makes so much sense. And how all these, why this sign is used for all these terms. And that a, a God King can split He's this, piercing. You know, yeah. that he can be born from it. Or that all of us uh, are somehow born from this watery 
abyss in and some way. The egg is, or the bia, is protecting us from the waters that would, chaos would come in and drown us. And yeah. It's mm -hmm. holding us in this little bubble. We exist in an egg. Yeah. And we do. The actually. sheltered bubble. And we really do. And we're destroying it. Mm -hmm. But anyway. <laughs> yes. So one of my other. In our egg. Yes. One of my other favorite ones you pulled was cords of Bia to go up to the sky. Cords. What's the word? Do you know? I didn't write it down. Vicky, do you oh, remember? Let me see. Cords. Must be Nuh, I guess, but let me see. Nuh. Yeah. And with M. Uh, cords of Bia. So this is this in reference to the king again, like a ladder to the sky. No, like yes, no, no. Okay, it's like the ladder to the sky, like it's some sort of physicalized. Is it sunbeams or what? How is it understood? I have no clue. But these are the, these are the word is cords. There is also another word for stairs, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Mm, interesting. But I don't know if the stairs are. Uh, I mean, in the pyramid text, I don't know if the stairs are made of iron. I don't remember. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think in the in of iron we have the cords of Bia, the Bia, the iron bonds of the yep. king, uh, which are equated to the imperishable stars. Yes, I have that uh, one next. Yeah, the Bia bones of the king, which are the imperishable stars. I love that. Which is a beautiful yeah equation. Mm -hmm. And you get directly related stars, meteors, iron, the and bones of the king are metal. And you have later traditions <laughs> that make those bones of silver, but mm -hmm. here we have the bones of iron, but of meteoric iron. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's just a beautiful is, metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of connection between stars and iron, uh, apart from this one of the... Well, the, the sign has a star <laughs> determinative mm -hmm. sometimes, too. And uh, then you have also one of the Abu Siri papyri, one of the this old kingdom papyri with administrative documents. You have uh, the some blades that were supposed to be used for uh, for an ancient Egyptian ritual, which is called the opening of the mouth, mm -hmm. and uh, they are called the sebau blades. And sebau literally means sebai, uh, se sebawi yeah. actually, the two stars. That's awesome. Huh. And they're said to be made of iron of bia in this text. So the cord, in a way, could be these nuhu, could be mm -hmm. like a connection between the star and the sky and the earth, and that's the way the iron comes down to us. It's like some sort of channel that... Could this be like lightning? Because there is the firmament, right? The firmament, and then there's the... I don't know what sign it is, what end it is, but you've got your firmament, and then you have your... Yes, with your yes, lightning yes. coming down. Maybe that's the nuh. Maybe that's the cord, and it is like a lightning. Yes, yes, it could be. Or it a shooting star, which is different. Mm -hmm. But um, something from above coming down below. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just trying yes, to... it's definitely something yeah. in there because uh, there is correlation between meteors and lightning and thunderstorms. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, because meteors sometimes would make glass, right? If it struck the sand mm -hmm. and... Yeah, because there's that scarab made mm -hmm. out of that yellow glass. From I think it's the yellow-greenish thing on that's his, in... One of the pectorals. Exactly. Yeah. And it's one of the central pectoral things, and since it's been it's been since tested, and they've proven that it's a meteoric glass, which is, which is amazing. amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's mm -hmm. amazing. yeah. And the word for comet for uh, and for thunderstorm uh, is the same as well. The word for comet it's and the, thunderstorm is the same. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Lightning, yes. It's something common. I was when I was doing this research, I was reading about ancient other cultures, and apparently it's common. Uh, in different cultures to have uh, these two concepts being uh, sort of like confused or equated, mm -hmm. thunderstorms and um, comets and 
meteors. Just things from the sky. Mm -hmm. So actually, I mean, at the end of the day, until very recently, until um, uh, until the 18th century, uh, the European scholars they thought that meteors were they were kind of calling them thunderstones. They they were putting them together with fossils and uh, all sorts of like weird things that they couldn't explain mm -hmm. in their cabinet of curiosities, and they didn't think they they were coming from outside of there. <laughs> they didn't think they were coming from out of from outer space. So this is some sort of knowledge that the Egyptians had, and the 18th century scholars in Europe didn't. <laughs> That's hilarious. I saw Thor. Right, <laughs> and his, his hammer the comes down. It's the gods smiting. I mean, that's where yeah, it all comes Steph. from. This, it's it's mm -hmm. wonderful. chaos. It's wonderful. So we have the BS sign. I think it's pretty clear the BS sign being equated with the sky, and the sky being equated with waters. So we get the bowl holding water. That makes clear sense. And then, but the, but it's it's not completely clear in a way. Yeah, like wh where do you go with the waters, Vicky? So the waters can be, I suppose. Two things. One, you have your Milky Way, right? Mm -hmm. Which does make a, that's the body of Newt maybe going over the sky. But then there's the Egyptian mm -hmm. idea that you get, I think in the coffin text for the first time, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, that you have the waters inside of the sky, right? That the sun god mm -hmm. embarks upon the, yeah, when he dies. Yeah, and he's on a bark. How does the mm -hmm. water part work in your understanding? So it is said in the pyramid text and uh, also in, uh, in other texts that are not uh, that are not from the king, but are also kingdom private texts, funerary texts. Uh, uh, not funerary texts in the sense of like ritual texts, but like biographies, for example. Mm -hmm. And they uh, they mention that the king or whoever the owner of the tomb sails the via. So it's mm. specifically mentioned that they go on a boat on the on these waters of the sky. So uh, my understanding is that these waters inside the via or the sky or whatever is it refers to the uh, the waters inside the the uterus of note uh -huh. of the sky that's where the women part come into play yeah as well that's you don't connect it directly to the milky way uh, well i mean it's also part of it as well right the part of having the nile on the on the sky yeah yeah the the what's uh, is it in the What's the saying where it's like a river in the sky? Is that from yeah. Marna? What's, yeah, is, what's the word? Is there a Milky Way in the in the pyramid text? Or do we not have it till later? Well, there is an article that was written about this, right? About the uh, the, um, the Milky Way in the in the sky. And the, there is a word for that. But I don't, I don't remember now what is the... Uh -huh. What is it? But I remember there is an article about this. About the Milky Way in the, the pyramid text. Who, who, who was the author? Um, we'll have Amber look it up. Yeah, we can look it up. <laughs> so um, quickly, just to touch upon then the connection between this bowl of water and Newt. So um, I guess for audience doesn't know, Newt is typically the is the sky goddess who births the sun god after his journey um, each day. Um, and so if this then is kind of viewed as a, a uterus of which is the word you know it's it's the determinative for the word for uterus and it makes perfect sense then that newt is this is also amalgamated with the sign and this understanding of the sky being a bowl of water and the sun god on his bark is sailing through it through each day to be you know reborn again the next um so then this stuff gets all amalgamated with resurrection 
and revivification, right? Mm-hmm. Because, well, because what stood out to me was when in the article you talk about the opening of the mouth uh, tools and even headrests head head um, mm-hmm. being connected to this idea of rebirth. And then so it has to be bia, and so then, you know, being iron or a metal of some sort. And so you having iron or metal headrests and iron or metal opening the mouth tools because it's this... This bi is the thing that will help you then become reborn and all these things. It's 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 linking to this metaphorical understanding. Mm-hmm. Do you do you link the peshkef knife into this too, Vicky? Um, well, in the sense that it is used to um, it doubles in the in the ritual of the, of the opening of the mouth and then also in uh, in childbirth as well, right? Mm-hmm. And then there was. Um, an article about uh, uh, about this with, uh, by Anne Macy Rose, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, right? Mm-hmm. About the tools, uh, the iron tools that were that have a connection with the um, with the ritual of the opening of the mouth and childbirth. So, uh, so yes, I definitely see this 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 concept of like opening and splitting things open as from once separating the sky and the earth, and then also, uh, as you were saying before, like opening. Uh, girls to give uh, to give birth mm-hmm. and then also opening the mouth in the ritual of the opening of the mouth which appears in the in the pyramid text because the word used is the same is the one uh, used to separate two things mm-hmm. sky and earth the via egg and the the mouth of the of the gods and uh, so then yes i definitely see the the the, the correlation there with, between the uh, tools used in uh, in childbirth and opening of the mouth and and the shape of them is very interesting because if I remember right, the Peshkev knife, and you have to all close your eyes and try to imagine this, it's like you have a handle that you hold on to, yeah. which is usually like a rectangular, and it's a rectangular handle that's long. But then coming off of that, it's almost like two bird heads looking in opposite directions mm-hmm. or two waves cresting in opposite directions. And it is a split. Mm-hmm. It is an absolute split. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. maybe that is meant to be the Bia and Pet that is that is opening, that is the splitting. That's, split. that's the, the birthing moment. And then it would make sense that you would use that instrument to protect the baby, to to open their mouth, um, mm-hmm. to, to do all kinds of mm-hmm. other things. But it, it's the shape is evocative of exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's also this idea, again, of like opening, like, uh, creating as a means of uh, making something distinct from something else. So you have like uh, uh, something that is, as to say, an unif- uh, um, an undefined mass, and you open it, you separate it, and you make two things. Uh-huh. And that's how creation starts, right? You have that's how you have the first parts of the universe. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Do you think there's any connection to like the mutabil- mutability of metal in general? That it's something that can be shaped and formed. Um, back getting attached, any type of that kind of understanding attached to it, like clay. Yeah, like clay like being full, making, yeah, like making out someone of out of clay, and metal yeah. being this very changeable material. Hmm. The mutability of the metal as uh, in connection with um, with the with creation. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. That that definitely could be something I had I hadn't thought of. But it's a very interesting suggestion too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just was thinking of the clay, mm-hmm. to, uh, as you said, with clay and just the metal being this very special, same with glass, like that's very special, it's liquid and then it's, 
then it solidifies to something super hard and you can make it in any shape and well and to make yeah. iron you're essentially using like earth ore yeah and you mm -hmm. heat that and you it, with enough heat you can actually pull metal out of the out ground. of earth oh, yeah it's kind of, of a crazy thing the more red the earth the more iron that's in it mm -hmm. and the more you'll be able to do with it but one wonders how much the egyptians knew about what was in earth itself uh, mm -hmm. If that's the clay that Knum is using to create humanity on the potter's wheel in later traditions, then then maybe those things are connected with the idea of metal. Yeah, or um, seeing a yeah. meteorite fall from the sky and you go and find it. And well, and the earth has baked, it has cooked, <laughs> mm -hmm. and so things are going to happen in the earth that, that wouldn't be possible unless that heat, that extreme heat hit it. Mm -hmm. And if it hits the right mm -hmm. kind of earth, maybe it creates little metal things that mm -hmm. aren't from the meteor itself. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, the extreme heat of the meteorite itself, yeah. yeah. And glass and other yeah. protrusions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, well, I have a, I don't know if there's any evidence of this, but I was just thinking about how, thinking of if your your sky is a bia and the bia is holding up, you know, water, how terrifying it would yeah. be for to have a storm or to have <laughs> a meteorite come to Earth. And do you see any of this, any of fear, um, Nehru, maybe awe or fear being applied to this idea of, of Bia, um, something to to try to, you know, wariness or Seth being, um, causing this chaos or something like this playing out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, not in, the, in the, the pyramid text, because Bia is referred to as something, just as, as I was saying, as, a, as the sky, the, this iron in the sky containing the waters. Uh, for sure, it is associated with Seth, mm -hmm. and Seth is a god uh, that has to do with chaos, with the desert, with thunderstorms, and all that. But uh, then also, uh, what I can think of right now is the the story of the shipwreck sailor, uh, a Middle Kingdom story, uh, in which um, a person arrives into an into an island after he has a shipwreck, and she runs into a huge snake who can speak, mm -hmm. <laughs> and this, this snake. <laughs> tells him that in that island there used to be other people, other huge snakes like him, like him, who died because a star fell from the sky. Yeah. So there you have again that uh, you can have that aspect of like this fearful aspect of stars falling from the yeah. sky. And it's a brutal so, part of the text, Vicky, right? They all burn and it's mm -hmm. a heap yes. of corpses. It's a heap of snake corpses and all of his family and his children are yeah. there. I yeah. think the word hide is used. I don't remember, but it was. it's a sad part of the... Yes, yes, it is. It is. Well, and do you, I don't know if you know, later on, do you get kind of the idea that a meteorite or a falling star or something like this is a bad omen like we see in other Near Eastern cultures? Mm -hmm. No, not in Egypt. Okay. As far as I know, I, I'm from the texts that we have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about, you know, I'm thinking of what, I'm playing off of what you just said mm -hmm. that it's this frightening thing I would, that it'd be terrifying to see a meteorite <laughs> shoot through the i mean we see videos of it like a couple years ago there was that one in like russia and it was like yeah. this bright blast of light and went through all the trees yeah, and, and created like, this big path of destruction in its way scary but also because it doesn't rain often in egypt mm -hmm. and when it does it's it's it can be pretty violent and the idea that you're holding the noon at bay or th that Newt is up there keeping the primeval waters 
all the primeval chaos, all the primeval darkness, all the primeval infinity away and at bay. Mm -hmm. And she's there, but Shu's got to help her too. Shu, the light and air is holding her up like an atlas, if you like, but not Mm -hmm. holding up the earth. He's holding up the sky, holding up that firmament so it doesn't crash down. I mean, this idea that, you know, kings always want to make themselves indispensable, don't they? Mm -hmm. And they want to say, like, you know, without me... Without me and the offerings that I give to the temple, you guys would all be lost and everything would be horrible. Is there anything in these texts that suggests that, you know, the king is like, only I can make this work, only I can <laughs> fix it, you know, that kind a, of, yeah. to maintain this separation between these two things that need to stay separated. Well, it's too, we have the, his, the king's bones being made of Bia. There's ways to get, I mean, you need noon. Yeah. You can't be completely separate from it. It's got, that's your primeval source. That's where the Nile itself is meant mm-hmm. to come from, right? That's where new life comes from. That's where my womb waters come mm-hmm. from. So you have to have that. But the idea that the male, you need the masculine entity to keep those, those arguably female, hormonal, difficult, slippery, <laughs> slippery, wet elements, you know, you need to control <laughs> them. And I like it that you need like a masculine king to to kind of keep the separation. But I don't know if you see anything like that in your text. Um, not really, because in the pyramid text, it's not, uh, the, the bee is not described as something that's potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. So the, there is not a need to keep it at bay or anything of the sort, unless this was just common knowledge and they just didn't need the, didn't feel the, the need to state it in there. But you do have, of course, the male king getting inside and opening, splitting open the, the bia, right? The mm-hmm. the which is supposed to be the uterus uh, and the um, the waters uh, of the u- of the uterus of mood or mm-hmm. to get inside in there. So you do have the male character getting inside the the female in order to um, to resurrect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that could be because the king is is a male. So yeah, yeah. It's very be interesting to see if in the pyramid text of the queens there is yes, something of this sort. Actually, there is <laughs> there is not as far as I That's as I can really? think. I, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it's person in the are in, the, in any of the queens pyramids. Huh. I don't think that I will have to check. Yeah, that would be very. <laughs> interesting. That's very interesting because you know there's these ideas of the. I mean, these are much later. The hysterical womb that must be controlled, <laughs> right? You have to circumscribe it and control it and make sure right, that you can move keep around. And yeah. Be, yeah. Well, and I was just thinking of like Greek, you know, humoral theory of like wet and hot and cold and wet and dry being you always want to maintain this stasis of yeah. everything but yeah. and water infiltrates everything mm-hmm. it can get into everything and you need dry expanses <laughs> to keep it controlled keep it at bay with no dry land there's no way to live there's mm-hmm. no life there's no houses there's no temples um and to make that dichotomy between male and female it's very patriarchal mm-hmm. fits for for me in terms of control and creating um a must-have political system, political ideological system. Mm-hmm. So when you, so looking at Bia in the pyramid text, did you happen to also maybe look at Bia later on and when this kind of, um, does the understanding of Bia change at all once it becomes very, very clearly linked to iron and iron metal of the sky and all these things? Do we see the other understanding of Bia as this bowl, as newt, do these fall away or um, do you see that the, cha- the meaning change at all? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a very interesting question. We do have references to the, again, to this conception of the iron as a, some sort of border, some mm-hmm. sort of barrier 
in the coffin text and in the book of the dead and in some stele or some king, this iron wall exists in there as well, although not as explicit as in the pyramid texts. As for the word of iron, uh, the word itself, where, where you have Bia in the pyramid text and then you have Bia in Pet, which is more specific, Bia of the sky uh-huh. in the New Kingdom, you start having that. But what is interesting here is that when uh, when iron starts to become, we would say, more widespread, or like, I don't know, the smelting uh-huh. technology of iron uh, started to appear in Egypt, which is quite late, um, we don't have change, as from what we see in the text, we don't have a change in the world. It's still being called the iron pit. Okay, that's what was my uh, question, was like, do they change yeah. it? Because they're like, it's obviously not from the sky. But then it's, but no. it's alchemy. You can make it from elements of the earth. And to be able mm-hmm. to do that is, it is a miracle in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's more on the Bia as a miracle. But also thinking maybe it's still Bia and Pet from a earlier time that's now buried, you know, it's it's older. Uh, metal there are the other forms of Bia, there is Bia and, and Kusa, and Bekis, you find Bekis in text, but it means okay. Bia from Kusa. Yeah. Yes. But uh, but Bia and Pet doesn't disappear, and it still refers to iron of all sorts, even uh, iron that's taken also from, that's imported. Mm-hmm. And um, so what, what this all seems to point to me is that perhaps it's this, they, it's, for the Egyptians, it's just the same thing. It doesn't matter where you're making it from, it's still part of the sky. Mm-hmm. So Vicky, you, can we go through some of the words that Bia stands for? So we have Bia and Pet, which is iron or iron mm-hmm. of the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, bia meaning a miracle or a wonder. Mm-hmm. Bia, mm-hmm. did you say bia can mean like a, a likeness? Person- personality, yes, it's used uh, character personality, but uh, it's also, it's only used, I think, for gods and specifically, I believe, hmm. for the god Amun. Huh. Interesting. And where does- Because he's wondrous. I guess, mm-hmm. oh yeah, okay, that makes Maybe. sense. Um, any other meanings that- Well, we she should- said uh, bia, being used, does it mean? Oh no, that was, I'm thinking of the determinative. Never mind. Oh yeah, I was what, thinking of the the womb water, part and yeah. the waters. What what else does bia mean specifically that we haven't found? Biait, not bia, but biait means also. It's one of the ways they were calling the Sinai, uh, oh. also in the Old Kingdom, the place of wonder, the, the place, place of, of wonders, the place with all of the awesome bia and pet. Mm-hmm. No, they wouldn't have said that in the yeah. Old Kingdom. Interesting. The turquoise. And B-I-E-T in the New Kingdom is more the word for miracle, right? In a late Egyptian text? In Bia, in the New Kingdom. It's not B-I-E-T? Ah, B-I-E-T in the New Kingdom. Yeah. I don't know, actually. Is it? I think it might be. We just read um, uh, Tale of Two Brothers, and I think the word B-I-E-T is there for mm. miracle. But I, I'd have to look uh-huh. again mm. and see. It makes sense, though, if it's with, the, mm-hmm. if it's with everything. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask because I feel like our listeners will be wondering. So Tut's one dagger is of meteoritic iron. Yeah. Um, it's been tested and all this kind of stuff. Um, obviously beyond being a beautifully constructed iron, you know, iron dagger, do you see any, I guess, cosmological or cosmographic attachments to this dagger? Is this dagger also supposed to be kind of something related to resurrection um, or is it just a really pretty dagger f- to put in the burial? 
it's on his body, right? They found it mm -hmm. within the wrappings placed, I think, where a dagger I mean, should, I would think you would be. have to be, you know, you can make a dagger out of any metal to purposely go make it out of... He has I, a gold one, too. He has yes. a solid gold one, too. Well, and I think it's argued, too, that this is, like, maybe a gift from the Near East, right? Question mark. Um, but do you see it having any deeper resurrection meanings beyond just being a nice dagger? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the Tutankhamun dagger is, of course, the most famous, but there were other iron, meteoritic iron objects found in Tutankhamun's tomb. Oh, really? <laughs> no one really talks about them. Oh, tell us more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have um, a, a set of small iron tools uh, with unclear meaning and function. Hmm. Then there, were also, uh, there was also a bracelet of iron with a wood jet. Ooh. A what? A wood jet? Wood jet, the eye oh. of Horus. The eye. Yeah. yeah. The eye, That's yes, cool. On it. And then also um, a small headrest, iron mm. headrest, uh, which was, I think that one was found in the wrappings of the, of the mummy as well, mm -hmm. as a, some sort of amulet, I guess. And um, and yeah, all these, all these objects, they were made of meteoritic iron, and it seems also because um, um, Katia Broshat and uh, other people, they recently wrote an, a book about uh, the iron objects of Tutankhamun's okay. tomb. And then also Albert Jambon has published on this. And it seems that these, these, uh, these, these objects, they come from three different me meteors at least. So it seems that they were actually on purpose <laughs> trying to look for, for yeah. meteors to, to fashion objects. And, it, and we're talking here about the 18th dynasty. So it means that at that time, Egyptians were able to fashion objects out of meteoritic iron, small objects, of course. And not the dagger. The dagger may have been taken from, from abroad. But the, the headrest, because of its typo typology, must, be, must have been manufactured in Egypt. And also the, the bracelet, because it's an Egyptian object. Uh -huh. And um, about the dagger, what's interesting also, as also Broshat and Jambon uh, note in their, in their articles, in their, in their work, is that, uh, the, that there is a misfit between the handle and the dagger mm. blade. So the it blade seems like they, <laughs> Yes, they don't fit. It doesn't fit. It seems like it, as if the dagger was, the blade was made for a different handle, mm. but they still put it in there. So uh, it could be that the, the handle was Egyptian and then the, dag the blade was mm -hmm. uh, that famous iron blade that appears in one of the Amarna letters that said that was gifted to if I remember correctly, Tom and Hotep III, who uh, was maybe Tut's uh, grandfather yeah. or uh, whatever. Somehow <laughs> related. Something. Yeah. <laughs> Family member of some sort. Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> we should look up which Amarna letter that is. I, I wouldn't have made that connection. That's wonderful. I, I always wonder what happens to all those Amarna goods. That's so cool. Mainly because of the textiles, but it's like the stuff. And they know. reforged it to this handle. Yeah. And then I love the idea that it's mm -hmm. a dagger that you use to split something mm -hmm. and right? it's on his body yeah close it's close to his body because it's his bones and then the gold yeah. is his is his skin mm -hmm. or flesh yeah. and all, all of those things really work mm -hmm. can can i ask so what's with be, oh, oh yeah go ahead. no go mm -hmm. ahead uh, i was saying it seems to be that these are all some type of luxury goods with a specific uh funerary meaning mm -hmm. probably and they were on purpose chosen to be part of tutankhamun's uh, burial yeah absolutely yeah so what's with the headrest with the headrest, so um, yeah, so it's it is the, the shape of the headrest for whoever uh, uh, doesn't have it in mind. It looks like also some sort of uh, 
curved uh, uh, hemispherical shape, and that's yeah. where the Egyptians, that was the Egyptian pillow. So like, top. <laughs> but also like Hemet, like the sign, I mean, and N41. So you're placing your head into the waters, into the womb, into the, the breast of your <laughs> the mother. The head is the sun. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he's, some, someone, uh, again, because I, I wish I had better memory, someone wrote an article about, the, about this, about uh -huh. how the sun, the, the, the head, is some sort of uh, metaphorical association with the, uh, with the sun on the horizon. Yes, or, the achet, <laughs> I have heard. Yes. So you put yes. the sun head, uh, that's the achet, and you do that. But to connect that to the, to the hemet in, in this context is different. It's the head is part, it's like going, it's like it's being swallowed by the waters. Because of course, the cycle mm -hmm. is to be born in the, in the east, but then in the west to die and to enter into her mouth, to be swallowed by her mm -hmm. mouth so you can go through mm -hmm. her entire body. So and what if the born. headrest of death is you, your head, like it's a backwards birth. You're like getting sucked into the, into the womb. <laughs> so you piercing can be, the bia. I mean the mouth really, but it's like the mouth, you're piercing the bia. That's right. Mm -hmm. You're piercing like the bia, or maybe the piercing is the birth, but maybe both of them are. But you have to you have to do both of both parts of that yeah. cycle, and or and the headrest like rise, raising you up mm -hmm. closer to, yeah. yeah. Well, in the in the pyramid text, entering the bia is described as a positive thing, as yeah. something that yeah. Una's spell the king has to do is something good. Yeah. So. How does it, how is it described in the pyramid text? Entering the dua, yeah, it's the, the bia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, entering the bia. Is there? He, a, he acquired the sky and splits its bia. So he's. That's that's a quiet. So he that's when he's going up. It's not when he's leaving. Mm -hmm. Oh, I I thought of the split as when he was leaving it and oh. being born. But that makes sense that it's when he goes. In. It's when he goes. He's, yeah, up he's and going. Then in. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's the strange thing. It's like he's going inside. It's like sort of like reversing the natural order of getting out. To yeah. Mm -hmm. He has to go or back in the womb, and then re be reborn again. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the headrest is like a womb. Half egg. Yeah. Yeah. That you put your head in, and once your head's in it, no. <laughs> ready, ready to go. It slurps you. But there is some spell, right? In the, I think in the Book of the Dead, uh, to protect someone from losing their head. Oh, that would make sense. <laughs> that would maybe explain all those retainer reserve heads. You need to make sure you have one. Yeah, maybe. But I, I just think of now, you, you put your head in the headdress and it just slurps you up. Yeah, it's like a portal like, to another. Like, one, you don't, you're too young, but like those, those things where... You go to the bank and you put oh, those weird tubes. Oh, I know what tubes. those things are. You do? Yes, yeah, so they would put lollipops in them yeah, on the yes. way back. Oh, yes. my God. Okay, good. Do you know what child. we're talking about, Vicky? Those weird little <laughs> suction things when you go to the drive-thru bank. Tube. I think it's a very American thing. <laughs> it's a very American thing. So you go to the drive-thru bank and they give you, you they, there's this thing goes whoop and it, it drops down and you, you put your check or your money into it and then you go whoop and it sucks it up. And I just think oh. of that being like... Um, it's the headrest the portal, exactly. headrest portal to the through the bia. It slurps you into yeah. Well, I think bia being this boundary, yeah. That's so it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Such so a wonderful. I found this when I was reading this article. I just kept saying whoa, yeah, the whole time because I was like, I just like you think of these things and you're like, ah, oh, that, that those connections don't make any sense. And then when you you know, cogently explained why their water, metal, the sky, and women are all connected in this manner. It mm -hmm. was like, ah. It's great. It's and so then great. the water's surround and the metal is the hard masculine sort of Holding element. everything. Because B.I. is a masculine 
element, right? Well, biat mm -hmm. is one. Yes, it is. Yeah. Biati. Then it's like, because it's interesting, you can't have creation without both. Yep. And the Egyptians understood mm -hmm. that. But the metal is the masculine element that, that makes the split, that makes the division. And the waters are just like, oh, you know, mm -hmm. uncontrollable. And they need to be controlled. Like, contained. To be, yes, they need to be contained by contained. this metal masculinity. Yeah. Yes. That's Jumping amazing. again to this thing of the female and masculine words, because I really like this topic. So it's like the words for the sky are female, right? And yeah. the words for the, for the earth are masculine, which yeah. is the, usually the opposite of many languages That's in which it's the other way around. Yes, yeah. I was thinking about that but too. But actually, yeah. oh, just no, like but, there being a sky <laughs> god in most cultures, but yeah. in Egypt we have exactly. a sky goddess. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like the opposite of, uh, of many other cultures. But actually, if you think of it, of it, if you think about a bit more about this, actually, even though the word for earth is masculine in ancient Egyptian, the word for productive earth, like cities or uh, productive land or uh, gnomes, they are all feminine words. Like mm -hmm. achet or yeah, or sepat, or a nude city. Mm -hmm. All these words are feminine. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. true. That's but true. then the earth is yeah, masculine. Masculine. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's this reversal. Yeah. But that's the containment. So those mm -hmm. feminine things, like the nude, is a circle, very mm -hmm. much like the the biat or the or no, like the the chemet, mm -hmm. right? A half circle. So it's like a circle containment. Um, and yeah. the, in the crazy the word for the circle is also feminine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There is something going on in there. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. And so you have the circle. It's a very simple thing. It's very abstract. But you have the circle of the feminine, which is split by the, mm -hmm. the masculine um, <laughs> and yeah, mm -hmm. it's crazy. But it just, just works so well once yeah. you think about it. <laughs> I'll never look at the Hemet sign in yeah. the same way again because now I'll think of it as like the egg crack. Like yep. when, you, when you take your soft boiled egg and you put your knife mm -hmm. across it and you can break it in two, that's what I'll think yep. of now. Because I always thought it was just a uterus. Yeah. But it makes you know, has all these connotations, which yeah. makes it even more interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Very, very cool. Well, I want to I finish up to wrap up just um, what your current projects are. So maybe what you're going to be doing at Harvard or what you're working on right now. We don't want to, you know, you just finished your dissertation, so I'm assuming you're working on turning it into a book and all this good stuff. But um, any other projects, articles that you're working on right now that you can tell us about? Yeah, yeah well, I'm... Um yeah, as you, as you guessed, <laughs> turning my dissertation into a book is yeah. going to be one of my priorities this first year. And I'm also working on a grammar of uh, Old Kingdom letters and royal Ooh, decrees. That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That would be wonderful. We have a grammar of the pyramid text, so this one can be complementary. <laughs> yes, that's um, we need that. Yeah, and um, then also well, as part of my my, my, my collaboration with uh, the Aera team in Giza, I'm part of the ceilings team. So we are studying the the ceilings uh, from from the from our site in Giza by the pyramids. Oh, cool, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I know I'm just with um, Nadine Moller's work down in Edfu. I'm sure there will be some good uh, comparisons of ceilings and such. Hopefully, if they can get any earlier. Yeah. I was talking about this with Jeff, actually. Oh, yeah. when I was <laughs> there you go. That's how I know about it, too. So that's great. <laughs> Any work in uh, down south in Sudan? I am collaborating with Pierce Paul on this as well. So uh, we are well in touch regarding the texts that they have there as well. Cool. Everything related with texts. 
awesome. for me. <laughs> awesome. Well, you have a lot of exciting things on in your in the next year coming up. So that's awesome. Thank you. Maybe a little fixation, but yes. Well, you know, you can take a little break from it and then get back into it. Hopefully, yes, this summer yes. you can take a break and relax a little. Or, but I know you're starting soon. But hopefully, get some a grammar break. A grammar break. Summer. There you go. <laughs> Write the grammar break. I love it. Nice <laughs> break. All right. Well, I just thank you for coming on um, to speak with us today. This was really, really interesting, and I know our our audience will be fascinated by this. I'm sure we'll have a bunch of follow up questions and things like this. And so we'll we'll link all your articles and all your information in in the show notes. So if they have uh, questions, they want to read the article themselves, they can find it that way. Um, I learned so much. Yeah, I learned so much. Thank you. Me too. We had a very stimulating conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. Do you have any uh, social media or websites that you want to shout out for people to find you at? Well, if, they, if anyone is a Spanish speaker, my uh, Facebook page for uh, outreach is called Jeroglificando. Perfect. <laughs> I can write that to you so you yes, can Yes, we can post. throw it in the show notes. <laughs> it's for Spanish speakers, so. <laughs> that's, that's great. Great. No, that's great. Interested? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank, thank you, Vicky. you, and we'll we'll let you do the the outro. And this is after lives of ancient Egypt. Woo! Yay. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Vicky. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with others and leave us a five star review. Send us your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the show notes in the podcast section of my website, karakuniegyptologist.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books and upcoming lectures. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter to keep up on the latest news and content from me. Check out the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off by subscribing to our Substack after lives after party you can find me on facebook at karakuni egyptologist and on twitter and instagram at karakuni see you next time on after lives with karakuni <laughs>